Good morning. And yeah, we're going to be continuing in our walk through Philippians. I hope you're enjoying this book. It's uh, been a terrific book, hasn't it, to be able to get stuck into. And we're in chapter three right now. So if you would turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter three, it's always a difficult book to find. It's on page 1180. And um, I've called this morning uh, True Confidence. Uh, it says that the title in your Bible says, No Confidence in the Flesh, but I've pulled it True Confidence. So let's read it together, just the first 11 verses. Further, my brothers and sisters, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Well, before we start to look at this passage in detail, let me ask you a few questions. What makes you feel confident when you maybe enter a room full of strangers or a party in full swing? When you look back over your life, what makes you feel good about yourself? When people you don't know ask you questions about yourself, what kind of things do you tend to mention first? In other words, what gives us true confidence? Some people seem to have a natural self-confidence, don't they? My Paul always jokes that I walk into a room and think everyone wants to be my friend, whereas he walks into a room and wonders if anyone's going to want to talk to him. You know, it's the classic difference between an extrovert and an introvert. But there is, of course, those who are overconfident, uh, and overconfidence that borders sort of on arrogance, which is extremely unattractive. Uh, George Bernard Shaw once said, my speciality is being right when other people are wrong. And King Alfonso of Spain, in the, back in the 13th century, said, had I been present at creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Usually, though, people are surprisingly lacking in confidence. Uh, one of the most beautiful film stars, or I think she is, one of the beautiful film stars, Julia Roberts, described herself, my mouth is too big, my smile is too gummy, and only my wardrobe people know how paranoid I am about my body. And the singer Madonna, who you'd never have thought would be lacking in the confidence stakes, has said, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. 
And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. So sad. So where can we find true confidence? Well, here in our passage, Paul tells us how he's completely changed his views, his understandings about, understanding about what true confidence is. Verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss, he says. In other words, the things he used to depend on to put his trust in, the things he used to think were so important, the things that used to give him a sense of pride and worth and status, he now says he sees as garbage, verse 8. Or actually, a closer translation would be he thinks they're a pile of steaming dog's poo. Yeah, that, that's what it is, a four-letter word, our modern four-letter word beginning with S. Now, why does he use such strong language? Paul obviously feels passionately about this. He, it's really important to him. It's something he's desperate for these new Christians in the church in Philippi to understand. And he uses such strong language because he wants to make his readers, he wants to make you and I sit up and take notice. Yes, it is the shock factor. And it's a bit of a shame that they haven't translated it properly in uh, this translation. He's coming against, you see, the Jewish infiltrators in the church who've been following him around trying to undermine his teaching. They were saying that you couldn't be a Christian without becoming Jewish. And if you weren't circumcised, you were incomplete. You were a sort of second-class Christian. They were insisting that the new Christians here in Philippi needed to prove that they belonged. They needed to earn God's acceptance. They needed to show their credentials. They needed to work for their salvation. In other words, they were denying God's grace by adding to the gospel, and that's why Paul is so stirred up. They were saying faith in Jesus wasn't enough. There had to be more. It was a gospel plus. They were insisting you not only need faith in Jesus, but conformity to our group, our culture, our society. Then you'll be acceptable to our circle as well as to God. So Paul's language is very strong. Watch out, he says, verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I mean, we think of dogs in this day and age, and we probably think, I don't know, what's your favorite? A beautiful black Labrador. But everyone in the first century would be thinking wild stray dogs, wandering the streets, searching for anything they could feed off. And Paul doesn't stop there. He calls them evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. I mean, he couldn't be more derogatory, deriding their traditional beloved sign of becoming, of belonging to the Jewish race by calling it mutilation rather than circumcision. You know, this must have been shocking to the Jews. Paul comes against all the things they've held on to so tightly, all the things that have given them such pride and self-confidence. And he challenges their whole belief system. Let me paraphrase verse 4. If you want more, he says, I'll give you more. If you want to talk about confidence in the flesh, confidence in your own achievements, then I'll show you a thing or two. I will blow you out of the water. And he produces a list, not just any list, but an A-star list. of All his achievements, all the things that have put him in the top running in Jewish circles. Both his pedigree and his performance, verse 5. Let's take a look at them. Firstly, his religious background. 
He tells us he'd been circumcised on the eighth day. His parents, in other words, had been devout Jewish believers and they'd done the right thing, marking him out as a member of God's family. And of course, today, I don't want to offend, but we think of baptism as the equivalent, don't we? The visible sign of entry into the church. And for many, that, that's given them their sense of confidence before God. I'm baptized. I'm a member of the church. Paul says it's rubbish. Secondly, his national background of the people of Israel. The Jews felt and still feel that this was a ground for security and pride before God. And even today, many people pride themselves on their nationality as if God has favorite countries. But God has no vested interest in Great Britain or any other nation. Our national background doesn't give us any sort of head start in spiritual terms. Paul says it's all rubbish. The third basis for Paul's confidence was his family or class background, which was impeccable of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this was the upper-class tribe. Everybody who was anybody belongs to this fa- belonged to this family. The tribe of Benjamin, least in number, most elite in reputation. Very public school. Paul says it's all rubbish. Fourthly, his cultural background, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews. Paul was quintessentially Jewish. He was, as we would say today, thoroughly kosher. He learned the right language. He knew all the hidden rules. In today's world, you have the right accent, you have the right manners, you have the right connections. But it's all rubbish, says Paul. He had the right social background. He was, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he belonged to the strictest sect in Judaism and would have been scrupulous in keeping every religious law. He attended synagogue regularly, he prayed diligently, and he would have given money generously. And many people today like to say, you know, I've always been very religious. I've been a churchgoer all my life. I always give to charity. As if this should give confidence before God. Paul says, it's rubbish. He had the right moral background. He'd been totally upright in his morals and beliefs and energetic in carrying them out. As for zeal, he says, persecuting the church. No one could question Paul's sincerity. But sincerity of belief is not enough. Some say today, it it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. But it does matter. It's possible to be sincerely wrong. And Paul sees how mistaken he's been. And lastly, he had the right civil background. He'd been faultless, we're told, as far as legalistic righteousness. He thought he'd led a good life, that he'd done done nothing to be ashamed of, compared with others, of course. He was a law-abiding citizen. And many people, again, today would say the same. They feel they're basically a good person and find it quite hard even to feel the need for forgiveness. But Paul knew now that that was total rubbish. Now, I wonder what we would personally have, what we personally have maybe relied on in that list, out of that list. What's maybe given us sometimes a sense of self-confidence, even self-righteousness? What privileges of birth or achievements in life have we come to depend on? Anything in our pedigree or performance that's given us a self-confidence? 
Um, I was looking through the brochure of a well-known Christian conference the other day, um, I won't mention the name, and I was drawn to the descriptions the various seminar speakers had given themselves for the magazine. They made quite interesting reading in the light of this passage. Here are just a few of the phrases they used. I've been ranked as one of the 20, uh, uh, 20 most influential business thinkers alive today. Uh, my website and YouTube clips have been, used by, have been used by 12 million people to date. I'm an author of many best-selling books. I became an evangelist, street preacher, and church planter by the age of 21. I wonder what Paul would have put in his resume. Well, actually, we have it here, not in these verses, which he discards, but right at the beginning of the book of Philippians. Just take a look back to the very first verse. What does he say? Paul and Timothy, servants of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. That's it. That's all he needs to say. That's who he is. That's where his confidence lies. Not, not in the mountain of, the, of moral and religious achievements he's just listed, that's nothing, he says. In fact, it's worse than nothing. It's not just neutral, it's negative. It's loss. It's garbage. Ready to be thrown in the bin. Uh, in the message translation, Paul says this. All the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant now. It's just dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ. So why does he suddenly see things so differently? Surely it's because now he knows Jesus He's seen what righteousness really looks like, and it makes his own efforts look pitiful, even disgusting in comparison. All the things he thought were so important, so confidence-boosting, he now sees as fit for nothing, fit only for the rubbish bin. It's not even that knowing Jesus complemented all his efforts or, or topped up what he'd done. No, knowing Jesus moved all these things from the prophet to the lost columns. Verse 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, this is what put life for him into its true perspective. This is what had given him a true confidence. And for any parents here, isn't that what we want for our children? To give them a true confidence that would hold onto them through life? So how are we helping them to find that confidence? What are the things we value most for them? Is it choice schools, good grades, more nice friends, top teams, great jobs? Often, you see, our own hopes and dreams and ambitions are exposed in what we want for our children. When a child is born, we want them to be normal. But from then on, we want them to be anything but. We want them to excel. We want them to achieve. We may not put our confidence in circumcision, but we start putting our confidence in circumstances. Education, opportunities, achievements, connections. 
And none of these things, of course, are evil or wrong in themselves, but compared to knowing Jesus, Paul says, they're just rubbish. They will mean nothing. Because Paul knows that at the end of his life, when he stands before God and God says, why should I accept you? He will hand him his resume and it will just have one word on it, Jesus. Our own attempts at righteousness are garbage next to the righteousness of Jesus. And if we're trying to make ourselves right by our own efforts, you know, we'll either end up self-righteous, thinking that, you know, we, we're, we are somebody, or we'll end up self-loathing, thinking that we're nobody. And neither is true. Trying to find confidence in ourselves, trying to prove ourselves, you know, is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for many of us today. God can't work with proud people. He won't work with people who are simply out to prove themselves, prove that they're bigger or better or stronger or brighter than the rest. And if our main concern is to promote our achievements, our intelligence, our looks, our abilities, whatever it may be, then we'll know our reward. It'll be immediate and superficial. And God wants to save us from all that. He wants to liberate us from all that. I mean, it's not that God wants, us, wants to discount our abilities, but it, he knows that if we trust in them, then we won't trust in him. And we need to learn what it means not to have a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And for some of us, that's a really hard thing to learn. It's really hard. I was brought up in a, in a family where achievement was very important. It wasn't that I didn't feel accepted or loved. It was a very loving family, but I definitely felt that my father's approval came when I worked hard, when I did well. And I loved to feel his approval. And it's a hard mindset to undo, to unravel, when we've grown up with that sense of, yes, I've got to do better, I've got to do my best. I've got to earn that right to be loved. I want to know Christ, Paul says in verse 10. That's his biggest aim in life, to continue to grow in this wonderful truth that he can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the thing that gives him true confidence. This is the lifelong journey that he's on. Someone once said, confidence is a plant of slow growth. And you know, the best environment for this plant to grow is the community of the church the church family. And here in St. Mark's, I believe we enjoy a wonderful unity and diversity, which we want to value, we want to encourage. We have people from all kinds of backgrounds and nationalities and experiences, and it's a wonderful and extraordinary thing. We're all one in Christ, and nothing in our backgrounds should give us any leverage or sense of superiority. We're on an absolutely level ground. And this is, you know, the amazing thing about the church. No other human society on earth compares or equals it. But on the other hand, Christ doesn't cancel out our background. So we mustn't be proud of it, but we also mustn't be, needn't be ashamed of it. Because he can use it. And this is, again, the miracle of the diversity of the church. So how do we know we're putting our confidence in Christ's righteousness rather than our own? Well, think for a moment how you might answer any of these questions. 
On an occasion when you've disobeyed Christ in some way, do you think you're less of a Christian than you were before? When someone asks you, are you a Christian, do you tend to answer yes, but not a very good one? In a week where you've read your Bible, been to church, and told someone about Christ, do you think you're more acceptable to God? You see, is your answer, I wonder, is your answer yes to any of these? And if so, do we, like Paul, need to review our profit and loss columns? And maybe confess any ways in which a sort of spirit of religion or of legalism has infiltrated our thinking as it did with the Philippian church. Because Paul begins this passage by telling us to rejoice. Did you notice that? It comes, it's a recurring little word that he uses through this, through this book. Rejoice, he says. Because you see, the gospel makes us joyful when it tells, because it tells us we've got nothing at all to prove to God. He does it all, and he gets all the glory. And that's what gives us true confidence and hope. Man-made religion, a false gospel, is the exact opposite. It tells us to strive for God's approval, and frankly, it makes us miserable. Because none of us has got what it takes to score any points on God's righteous scorecard. It'll undermine our confidence. It'll take away our joy. And that's why Paul unashamedly uses such strong language in this passage, because he sees the stark choice we need to make. All the stuff that we've held on to, all the things we try to do to make ourselves more acceptable to God, all the things we think will earn God's approval, it all needs to go on the rubbish heap. It's all rubbish, Paul says, compared to the amazing and extraordinary beauty of the gospel, which is this free gift. It's a gift God gives us. We don't have to earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a free gift. And it's the only thing that will give us true confidence in life. So shall we stand? And let's ask God, ourselves, for this true confidence. Not the false confidence that the world offers. Not that false confidence that always is asking for more. Always says we've never done enough. Always gives us that nagging feeling that I'm the one on the outside. Let's ask God to just come and show us maybe where this sort of wrong type of work ethic has just embedded itself in our spiritual values. But we need to confess that, yeah, we've grown up with this. We've adopted it. We've, we've come with us down the years saying, I've got to earn my approval. I've got to earn acceptance. I've got to win my place. And God says, no, don't you see? I've won it for you. That's the cross. I've won it for you. And for those of us who find this hard, we find it hard because actually everything in us screams out, yes, but I need to do something. He's saying, no, just look at the cross. 
just see that this is the gift of God that he gave his son so that we can know forgiveness, we can know acceptance. There's nothing more we need to do. That's the starting point. And as I was um, uh, preparing this, I just had a sense that for some of us, this feels like we've got a a rucksack on our back and it's just got heavy rocks in it. We think we're carrying things that we need, things that will be useful, things that we can get out and use, but actually all it is is heavy rocks. There's nothing useful in there. Nothing of use. And it's weighing us down. It's wearing us out. And it's for nothing. God's inviting us just to take it off our backs. Take those rocks out. And set us free. And if you want that freedom this morning, and I sense for some of us this is an important message, even maybe an important moment. We've never really, really let go of stuff. And maybe you just want to put out your hands and just say, this is a sign that I am. Maybe, again, letting go. All those things that maybe I've held on to so tightly. All those things that I think are worth something that I'll be able to hold up and say, you know, I've done this, Lord. Did you notice I did this? All for you. And he says, but didn't you know I loved you all the time? And so, Lord, we want to today, this morning, just consciously put down, lay down those rocks. Lay down anything that hinders us from knowing you and knowing your love, knowing your acceptance, knowing even your approval. We invite you to come, Lord Jesus. And as we sing this song, we pray that you would touch our hearts, speak into our lives. Give us that true confidence that only comes from you.